God bless you all. Time for our sermon today. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll look at just two verses to commence with, and that's verses 7 and 8. As we continue our look at this series in Daniel, we're up to our 13th sermon, would you believe it? Our 13th sermon today, and we are looking at another beast that Daniel sees in his vision. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. <clears throat> After this I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strung exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for your word, and we thank you that we can trust it fully with our lives. And we pray that you would open up our understanding this morning and give us grace that we need and your wisdom that we might not just understand what we're um, hearing and, and saying and reading, Lord, but that our lives would be transformed because of it, that we would live according to it, and that our lives would be uh, reflective of the faith that we say we have. Help our actions Help our works match up with our words. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so so far we have looked at uh, three of the beasts in Daniel's uh, vision so far. So we have seen that the first one was an eagle, if you remember. The second one was um, like a bear and the third one was like a leopard. And they represented the head of gold in the statue, the chest and arms of silver, and the belly of bronze or brass. So those three kingdoms we have seen are representative of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Then it moved, then Babylon was taken over by the Medo-Persians, which is the bear, and then it was taken over by the Grecian Empire. And today we are looking at the fourth beast that Daniel sees in his vision, which he describes in this, these couple of verses as dreadful and terrible and very strong and having iron teeth. That's a pretty scary sort of uh, beast there. And it says that essentially it ate the previous beasts and crushed the residue of them. But where the previous beasts were likened to some sort of a known animal, like an eagle, a bear, and a leopard, this one, Daniel doesn't provide us with any particular description or animal to resemble it. It tells us it was just terrible. It was so terrifying, he didn't really have an animal to actually liken it to. According to history, the fourth beast to emerge that would overcome the Grecian Empire, which lasted some 300 years, and if you remember, had split into four major regions under four rulers, um, it, would be take, it would take over the Greeks. We examined one of those rulers, if you remember last week, whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was the ruler of one of those kingdoms, and that was called the Seleucid Kingdom. And Antiochus Epiphanes was described as the little horn that came up among the four. And he essentially is, was almost like a forerunner, or 
a picture of what would come in the future. That little horn that came up among the actual four um, is essentially like an antichrist. And he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, tried to force all the Jews to worship Zeus uh, and to uh, take upon themselves the, um, the Greek religion. And the Jews, if you remember, in our sermon last week, were already split. Some had already become Hellenized, which means to become Greek in their thinking and living, while others tried to stay faithful to the, uh, the faith and tried to stay faithful to the word of God. And he tried to drive a wedge between those two types of people. And he was quite a, a difficult uh, person in, in, in that when he thought that they were uprising, um, he managed to slaughter about 40,000 and send another 40,000 into slavery. So he existed in the latter times of the this third empire. Um, but what we are looking at now is the fourth that overtakes the third. And this fourth kingdom is Rome. Okay, so the Romans, just to give us a bit of background, first appeared, Rome, Romans as a people, first appeared around three, uh, 730, uh, 753 BC. That's a long time before, 750 years roughly before, and even were ex in existence before Nebuchadnezzar came into power in Babylon, which was around 600 BC. So they were, they were around. There were Romans around, but they weren't a world empire. They were just a, a small group of people at that stage. According to Roman legend, the Rome itself and the city itself was founded by Romulus and Remus, twin brothers who were supposedly the sons of Mars, the god of war. Romulus and Remus, according to legend, were abandoned by their parents and put into a basket uh, that was then placed in the river Tiber. The basket ran aground and the, the twins were apparently discovered by a female wolf and who raised them as her own. And when they grew, um, the, the legend goes that the brothers were trying to establish a new city and they argued over where it should be. And so one brother, Romulus, killed his other brother, Remus. And that's why we have a city called Rome not Rim. So it's interesting the, the similarities that we find in the to, with this to the biblical stories. So we know that Moses, uh, because of persecution, was when he was born, was put into a basket and, and, and floated down the river and was eventually uh, taken up by and found by a, a woman in, uh, in, in Pharaoh's court and raised as her own. And then we also have the story of Cain and Abel, who were essentially twin brothers, and Cain ended up killing his brother Abel. So I wonder how much of it's borrowed uh, from the uh, from the biblical stories, but it's just an interesting side note. So that's the background of Rome or the beginning of Rome, which was around for a while, but did not really come up, rise up in power until much, much later. The Greek Empire, uh, which had started with essentially Philip and then, uh, and then uh, Alexander conquered all those areas that we'd spoke about uh, a couple of sermons ago. 
The Greek Empire, which lasted about 300 years, finally fell when the Greek city-states uh, were overtaken by the Roman Republic in around 146 BC. So around almost 150 years before Christ, Rome uh, defeated the Greek city-states. And the problem with the Greek city-states is that they were fighting amongst each other most of the time. They weren't unified very often. And so you had Athens and Sparta and Corinth continually at war with each other and not essentially unified. It, it took a, a lot of a lot of threats for them to sort of get band together. But they're called the Greek city-states because they were still independent uh, to a certain uh, degree. And the fall of Greece really is or began with the fall of Macedonia or the fall, those city-states, the fall of those city-states to Rome. And Macedonia or Greece central was made a Roman province at that time, around 146 BC. But Rome had not taken over all the provinces that Alexander the Great had gone into before or that had been previously ruled by the Greeks. And it was not until about 115 years later that the actual Roman Empire as an empire was founded around 31 BC. Only around 30 years before the Son of God would come into this world and Augustus Caesar proclaimed himself to be the first emperor of Rome in 31 BC. The Roman Empire swallowed up all of the Grecian Empire, the Persian Empire that was before that, and Babylon itself, including all those lands. By the time of Christ, Israel was under the rule, well and truly, of the Romans, who had placed their governor in it, as they had governors all over the place. If you notice, there's a, there's a common thread with all these nations who were taking over, excuse me, other nations. They would place their governors in charge of it, um, the Babylonians and princes, uh, spoke of putting their, uh, the Babylonians and the Persians, sorry, spoke of putting their princes in charge uh, of those areas. And the Romans had their governors as well. And one that we are most familiar with in the Bible in the New Testament was Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, and that included Jerusalem. That's why he's so prominent in the, in the stories of Christ. So the Roman Empire itself was only only really came to an end, if it ever really did, and I don't think it necessarily did 100%, with the fall of what we call Constantinople, and that's modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. The fall of the Constantinople, which was, as you can imagine, begun by Constantine, um, occurred only in 1453 AD. So that's, a, that's, that's almost 1,500 years after it became an actual empire. So it was the longest out of all these empires to exist. And the reason that Constantine or Constantinople was in, um, was in play here and not Rome is because a long time before that, Rome was split up into two regions, which represented, if you remember, the legs of iron in the statue of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the one that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. So the fourth kingdom aligns itself in that statue with the legs of iron. And the reason that we have Rome and Constantinople 
is because it was split up into two, okay? And so those two operated on a, on a very sort of different type, different level. It was split up fairly early on because Rome had become so big that it was difficult to administer and difficult to govern. So they did that, but then it sort of exacerbated and became east and west. And we still have the repercussions of that in what we call the east and west religions or Christianity, orthodox religions in, in Europe. And so there's the West, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And then we have the Orthodox Church, which is the East and continues to, to be Orthodox, um, including the Armenians and that. And so you have this separation of East and West because the Roman Empire itself was split up into two and is represented by the two legs in that statue. And we'll talk about the feet a little bit later, probably um, with focus will be uh, next week, but we'll talk a bit about the, the feet today. So Rome, as an empire, was the longest lasting empire of the three, in as much as someone's legs uh, are probably around half of their height, if not more, uh, compared to the upper body. So if you, if you look at the head, the chest and the, and the belly, uh, the legs are probably as long as all of that, if not more. And so the first three kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, lasted some 600 years or so, but the legs, or Rome, lasted even longer than all of those. And so as it was split up into east and west, the west was the first one to fall around 476 AD, when the Germanic tribes coming from the north uh, overtook Rome itself. Um, but they didn't overtake the eastern part of the of the kingdom, of the empire. They overtook the Roman or the western part of the actual empire. But the, the, the east only fell uh, around 453 BC to the Ottoman Turks. Now, when the Germanic tribes came down and defeated Rome back in 476 AD, what was interesting about that is that they didn't actually destroy the Ro the Roman culture, the Roman system of government, or the or, or those sorts of things, but rather they actually adopted Roman customs and even the religion itself, the Roman Catholic religion that was already uh, had begun uh, previously. So the Roman Catholic religion essentially started with um, with Constantine around three hundred or so, and the he his desire was to make all of rome christianized so christianity went from um being an outlaw faith to being tolerated and when constantine came into um uh, leadership he apparently and we don't know this for sure but he said he was a christian and he then wanted to make christianity the official religion of the roman empire now they did that in various ways, which were probably not right, and which we still have the ramifications of today. But that's another discussion and another topic uh, for another time. But what ended up happening was when the Germanic tribes defeated Rome central in itself, they adopted the Roman Catholic religion. They took it upon themselves, and they, as they spread throughout Europe, as they took over if you look at the languages of the French and the Germans and, and even in England, you'll be aware, and in Italy, you'll be aware that a lot of those nations are actually the descendants of, especially the, the royal families, are descendants of those 
Germanic tribes that defeated Rome. That's why you have a French language, and that's why you have um, a different Lombard. Uh, the Lombards were a Germanic tribe. The Saxons were a Germanic tribe uh, in, in, in France. And you have all the different regions in Europe, really the result of where these various Germanic tribes settled and then formed a particular language or had a particular language. And then they became what was really, they, they were the foundation of the royal families in Europe, which are still around today. Okay, so they adopted the Roman culture. What, what's interesting is that normally when one kingdom overtook another, it imposed its customs on those cultures or allowed them to have their own to a certain respect, but they actually overtook it. What happened when Rome was defeated by the Germanic tribes is the, the German tribes actually loved the, they were enthralled by the advancement of the Romans in terms of their architecture, in terms of their um, lifestyle, and they adopted it. They adopted what they saw, including the systems of government, including the faith, including lifestyle and the whole lot. So they didn't necessarily destroy Rome in itself, but they almost became uh, um, absorbed into it. And so what came from the fall of the western part of the Roman Empire um, morphed into something else. It actually morphed into what was later called the Holy Roman Empire. Not just the Roman Empire, but the Holy Roman Empire. And the reason it was called the Holy Roman Empire is because the Catholic Church, with those Germanic tribes that settled down in those things, who adopted the Catholic religion or faith, actually had a much more prominent role in the governing of the West, the Roman Catholic Church became wedded to the government. It essentially became almost the government and ruled together with those, the heads of those Germanic tribes and kings. And so, and then in the, the 19th century, when the, then when the East fell under the Ottoman Turks, you finally, I supposedly have the fall. But Rome didn't really fall completely. There's still a residue of it in the world, and, and there's a lot of it still in, in, in Europe. And the question we might even have is how far that has spread into the world. Okay, so the, the statue has very long legs indeed, uh, whereas the, the previous three kingdoms only existed around 600 years from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks. Rome existed for around 1,500 years. And the question is, is it, completely destroyed the answer to probably that is no to some extent anyway and so there's another twist to this and if you look at daniel chapter 7 verse 23 with me there's a description that gabriel gives to daniel about what this kingdom or empire has to still do and it says in Daniel 7, 23, And thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Now, even though the Roman Empire was a vast empire, it didn't cover the whole earth. So it seems as if there's something more that still needs to be fulfilled. And we're going to look at some of those things that still are to be fulfilled. It hasn't quite fully disappeared, and it's going to play a very important role 
for a very short time toward the end, in so much as feet are short compared to the length of a leg. And so the question is, well, what's it going to look like? Well, we've got some clues given to us in the following verses. Okay, so turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. And let's see what the scriptures teach us here. Daniel 7, verse 7 says, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse, which means different, from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, uh, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So let's go forward to verse 24, and let's see Gabriel's interpretation of these things. And so Gabriel uh, says to Daniel in verse 24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Okay, so we know they're ten kings. And another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Verse 25 then says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and dividing of the time. Now you've probably heard that phrase before. That generally means three and a half years. So a time is a year, a time again is a year, and dividing of a time or half a time is a half a year. So there's three and a half years that you will see, and we'll look at this next week, repeated over and over and over. Some sort of pattern in the Bible going from the Old Testament to the New. And that time is when, or what the Bible calls, Jacob's trouble. And it's a time in the future that will coincide with the ruling of these 10 kings and this little horn that's going to come up uh, after them. So the 10 horns are 10 kings, according to this, this prophecy, um, that come together as part of like a revived Roman Empire. And, so, and of those 10, it says here that three will be subdued by another king who rises up among them. In other words, he will be one of their own. And so this eyes, this, uh, sorry, this horn, little horn is said to have eyes like eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. You know, when I, um, when I hear words like this, when I read these particular things, I'm reminded of people like charismatic leaders like Hitler, um, who went around Europe seeking to conquer Europe um, before his downfall. And if you've ever heard his speeches, uh, before thousands and thousands who adored him, you get the idea of a man who speaks great things. And it will seem to be, this little horn seems to be like a man like Hitler, or who sought to create a Third Reich, or sought to create a Third Roman Empire, in essence. And he sought to do that by unifying the whole of Europe and overtake all the areas of the previous Roman Empire. And if you remember, um, there was a fellow called Mussolini who was in league with him during the Second World War, and he took parts of Africa, and they began to try to divvy, divvy up Europe among themselves. And obviously it didn't go to plan because the whole thing fell apart, 
But it's interesting that isn't this isn't the first time that 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 idea was tried to re re um, to revive the Roman Empire. Hitler wasn't just the first one to do it. You see, Napoleon tried the same thing as well. Actually, Napoleon had himself crowned at one stage uh, as the emperor because he was sweeping through all of Europe and it looked as if, like Hitler, he was at one stage going to take the whole of Europe and begin a new world empire, which, is their ult which was their ultimate aim. The ultimate aim of Hitler wasn't just to stop at Europe. He wanted the whole world. And it wasn't until the Americans and the English resisted, really, that... Um, that his downfall um, uh, came about. But it will be like that. This little horn is gonna be a very charismatic sort of person who will whip up um, some sort of a fervor. And it will probably come about at a time when the world is going through difficulties. Hitler took advantage of the fact that Germany was, on, was under um, special rules and regulations by the Europeans and the Americans because they were blamed for the First World War, and so they were restricted as to what they could do. And uh, that influenced uh, the people voting for someone like Hitler because they they felt shackled, they were poor, and he was uh, he was offering them greatness once again. So it will look to be in the future. This little horn is probably going to take advantage of difficult times, a lot of times we're probably in now. He will look to take advantage of difficulties. Maybe it could be because of a of a an economic collapse, or maybe it could be for some other reason. But he will he will get people stirred up again, who will seek to follow him because he will seek to have or or, or show that he has all the solutions to these things. But that individual will look at further in our next sermon. Um, but our focus will be essentially on these ten horns today, which are described as ten kings. So you may be wondering, or you may have heard, that this is the European Union. Well, the European Union has about 27 or so nations, so it's not that at the moment. Um, and in 1993, when uh, the EU was, um, was uh, forming in 1993, there were many Christians who were looking at uh, with great interest to see whether this particular um, uh, formation would do the same thing. Well, it may have something to do with it. Um, it may be part of it. We don't know exactly quite how yet, but we do know that, that in the future there will be 10 kings that will align themselves together. And they need to have primarily control of pretty much all of the world or the, the most of the world. So the EU may simply be one or a smaller number of that 10. So we're not quite sure exactly how that fits in. So now we know that this coalition of states of 10 at some time in the future has not been fulfilled yet. There has never been a particular group of 10 that has dominated or ruled the actual or the majority of the world because they'll still be fighting against nations that are against them, but they will essentially have control of most of the world. And so it's not history. It hasn't occurred in Rome throughout Roman history. Um, and it's said to be, and this, this group of 10 kings ruling 10 nations that will conform a confederacy or a coalition will be said to be ruling or said to be ruling in the final world empire just before the return of Christ. And so that's why we see this description comes around verses or just before verses that describes the ancient of days coming. And we'll look at that in a minute as well. 
But at this particular point, it'd be good for us to read or reread the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the statue because it reveals something interesting about the final times of the kingdom. Because as the legs end in feet, and so too the feet end in toes, guess how many toes you've got? There are 10. And so this isn't the first time that this prophecy ends in 10. And so we're going to have a bit of a read of that passage now to help us remember the foundation that we are building on, which is that statue, which is the the progression of, of these world empires that come into play and that culminate in these feet and these particular toes and is the final empire that exists before the coming of Christ. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 2 and we'll read verses 31 to 33 and then we'll read verses 40 to 43. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 says, Thou, O king, <clears throat> sawest and behold a great image. This is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, describing the dream that he had, which Nebuchadnezzar had even forgot. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Turn to verse 40 with me. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, Part of the uh, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much uh, as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Verse 42 says, And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with, with clay. So the details we see in the final feet and toes of Nebuchadnezzar's statue correspond precisely with the end of the fourth beast, this end, the final culmination of the fourth, fourth beast, which is a confederacy of ten kingdoms ruled by ten kings, and with a little horn that comes up out of them, a little bit like, or something like, or in the spirit of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is by nature the same. And let's see what will happen to the fourth beast in the final days of the world's empire before God comes to rule for himself. And so you'll recall from the previous sermon that I spoke about this concept of clay mixed with iron. Whereas the previous metals were all solid and unified, it was either gold or silver or brass, the, an iron. Once you get down to the feet and the, and the toes, you start getting a mix of, of clay and iron, and that doesn't mix too well. And so it represents either a confederacy that's sort of united but not 100% together, or it includes, and this is probably even more to the point, it includes... Um, the democracies that we live in, in so much as the rule of previous empires who had emperors, these people had pretty much autocratic rule. Whereas in a democracy, 
you have to rely on people to actually vote for you and, and, and get you and keep you in power. And that's pretty unstable compared to a, 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 um, a theocracy or a, um, or a, a, a monarchy or, a, uh, or something along those lines. So you'll recall from a previous sermon that that iron mixed with clay represents something that doesn't stick together very well. And so it's going to partly be strong, but it's going to partly be weak at the same time. So this tells us that unlike previous kingdoms, that it's the people themselves that choose the king and want to be ruled by these 10 kings and this final little horn who speaks boastful words and someone who's going to persecute the saints and be very charismatic, they will want him. That's the difference here between the feet and the toes compared to the previous kingdoms. In the previous kingdoms, you had to toe the line. There was a an empire with an emperor, and the emperor had whatever rule he wanted, he could make. And so if you began to try to revolt, he could wipe you out very quickly. There wasn't a democratic rule. There wasn't votes for anything. There was nothing along those lines. So you find here that in the final feat, what you're going to find is that the people are going to essentially choose who they want. They will want it. And this idea lines up with what we see people do as we begin looking at things like the mark of the beast, which you maybe have heard of before, when they will willingly choose to mark themselves on their right hands or their foreheads in a pledge of allegiance to that little horn. And they will do it willingly. And that is why the Bible says that there will be no forgiveness for that because they will essentially mark themselves and align themselves with someone who is opposed to God. You cannot, and we'll look at this in detail next week, you cannot receive the mark of the beast by an injection without knowing about it, by some other means without realizing what you're doing. If that was the case, that'd be the first sin that you could ever commit that you didn't even know was a sin or you couldn't identify or that you didn't know what you were doing. So if you hear about anything that's, that speaks about, you know, people injecting um, chips into you without you knowing about it or there's something else going on, don't believe it. It is not this prophecy because this prophecy is very clear that the mark on a forehead or only on a right hand, which is not where you get an injection, is only to do with um, al aligning yourself with the identity of the beast. It cannot be done un unwillingly or unknowingly because that number or that mark or that name will be aligned to the beast. It will be something that you can see that will identify you as a follower. So let's continue. The Ten Kings. So what's interesting about this beast is that it's got these ten horns, which are ten representative kings. And as if you remember, Greece was divided amongst Alexander's four of Alexander's generals. Um, this kingdom is said to have ten kings. But it's not necessarily broken like Alexander's was broken. It just mentions that these kings exist. Let's have a look at Daniel 7.19 to get a bit more detail about them. 
So Daniel chapter 7 verse 19 says, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces and stamped a residue with his feet, and of the ten horns which were in his head, and of the other which came up and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them. That means he won. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. So once again, the fourth kingdom will prevail against the saints until the Ancient of Days comes to the earth. Who's the Ancient of Days? It's God himself. So we're speaking here of the final days. God hasn't come to the earth just yet in power and glory in his son, Jesus Christ. That hasn't occurred just yet. So speaking of the last days before the coming of Christ, just those last days. And remember, it's those last three and a half years that makes all the difference. You would have heard that the first that the tribulation period is seven years long. Well, the first three and a half years, the Antichrist or this little horn builds in his power and uh, achieves world domination as, as, as such. It's the last three and a half years that he flips and becomes the Antichrist or becomes the one who proclaims himself to be God and desecrates the temple again, like Antiochus Epiphanes. So speaking of his last days, the apostle John also sees a vision of a beast that, that ends with 10 horns. And it's the same beast as Daniel except it has some extra details. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Because John, while he's on the island of Patmos, being in exile from Rome, um, being there because he's being punished for being a believer, he has a vision. And Revelation 13, 1 says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns were ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat, and great authority. So we see in this beast, you'll notice some things that are similar. So John sees a beast with seven heads, but it's got 10 horns. And on those horns are crowns. They are the 10 kings, the same, the same horns that Daniel saw, which represent 10 kings that come right at the end. Except John now sees a beast with got seven heads. And it says the name the the upon the heads of the of that beast, the seven heads, are the names of blasphemy. 
Mm, blasphemy is something that you say against God, something that's contrary to God. And so just to give you some insight, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, the seven heads are essentially the rule of seven demonic beings, which we'll look at once again next week. And this beast has all the elements of the beast that Daniel saw before, except it's got them all built into it. It's got a leopard, which makes it quick. It has the feet of a bear, which means it can stamp down and have great strength. It has the mouth of a lion, which can devour. And you'll notice where its power comes from. In verse 2, it says, And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So let's keep this in mind. The seven heads of this being, and we'll look at the detail next week, are really seven demonic beings that have ruled seven empires over the ages. And they culminate, that rule and this beast culminates all these various kingdoms together and it culminates with the same 10 kings. But turn back with me just one chapter to Revelation chapter 12 because once again we see where the power of these empires or these kingdoms comes from. In, verse, in chapter 13, verse 2, it says, The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Who's the dragon? Well, let's have a look and see who the dragon is because Revelation 12 speaks of this dragon again. Revelation 12, 1 says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. Hmm, sound familiar? And verse 4 tells us, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, and for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Who's the dragon? The devil. The devil is the one who drew a third of the angels from heaven in a rebellion against God. And those angels we now call demons or devils. And some of those are the demonic entities that were given rule by the devil. Maybe he promised them that when they, when they rebelled. And they were responsible for the kingdoms throughout the ages. Remember, I spoke to you about the, the prince of Grecia and the prince of Persia. And when Gabriel came to deliver a message to Daniel, he couldn't get through for 21 days because the prince of Persia resisted him. And then Daniel, Daniel, uh, sorry, uh, Gabriel said, the only one who helped me with this was Michael when he came in to help me fight and get through. And so he finally got through, delivered the actual prophecy, which we get to read. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and Daniel wrote it down. And so what can resist an angel? We spoke about this already. Another angel or an army 
of other angels. And so we find the prince of Persia is a demonic being who was the power behind the Persian Empire. He was pulling the strings. But then uh, Gabriel says, when the prince of Persia was gone, the prince of Grecia would come. Well, guess now, this fourth kingdom, we have the prince of Rome. Who's the prince of Rome? I don't know exactly. But we know he's another demonic being. And so these seven heads are essentially seven demonic beings that have ruled and manipulated man and the kingdoms of the world. Now, <clears throat> in particular, as Persia, the prince of Persia and the prince of Grisha were two specifically, there will be, according to the scriptures, seven of these demonic beings who have ruled through the ages. Now, it may be Egypt was one of them and Babylon was another and maybe um, or Assyria could have been another as well. But there are seven altogether. And we'll look at a bit more about the detail of those next week. But what's interesting is that the final one is an eighth. And, and the scriptures actually tell us later on in Revelation, it says that that eighth comes up from the abyss in the final days. And that being who is called the, the, the king of the, of the abyss or the prince of the abyss actually comes up and is of the original seven. And so he's been around before this one. And he was thrown down to this pit, to this bottomless pit, and he manages to get out again during these last days. So what we find is the influence of the principalities, the Bible says, and powers enthroned uh, in high places, in and the darkness of the rulers of this world are the demonic beings and the devil's um, uh, leaders and generals who have been manipulating mankind in the formation of these kingdoms. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 for a moment. And these final 10 will be the final culmination of the devil's master plan. And this final prince over them will be the, the driving force um, as the devil tries to conquer the entire world and tries to destroy the people of God and turn the whole world against God. So what the scriptures are teaching us is that the devil has been playing around with mankind, has been manipulating mankind, and that's why the Bible says that mankind is essentially a slave to him. And they've been under his influence, has been blinded by him. And so when Jesus came into the world and was born in, in Bethlehem and came, to, um, and came to save mankind, we find that straight after he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now, who did he go? Who, who met him in the wilderness and tried to tempt him? Well, the devil. Now, have a look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Because what's interesting is that the devil tried to tempt Jesus to turn away from the plan, from the eternal plan that, it, that he had formulated with his father, that his father had given to him to save mankind. And instead of going through three years of heartache and um, pain and suffering and whatever, the devil was saying to him, it could be so much easier for you. 
you could rule all of mankind and the millions of people that are already on the planet directly if you just worship me instead. And so Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 says, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him, now pay careful attention to this, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The temptation was here not to have to endure the suffering that would come, but just rule mankind because the devil was saying, I'm already ruling them. Look at the kingdoms that are coming up here. In fact, uh, in another passage, I think it might be Luke, it actually says he showed them the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, which means he showed them all the kingdoms of the world. Somehow he showed them what was coming and he showed him, this is what I've got control of. Look at all the kingdoms around the world, even when he was speaking to him. So he offered that to Jesus. Essentially offering him an easy way out. Essentially offering him the option to keep man in bondage. To keep man a slave to keep man in his current position rather than go through the suffering to save man. Essentially, the devil is saying they're not worth it. Let's just rule them. Let's just dominate them. We've got them where we want them. They'll worship us whichever way we want. Let's, let's, why don't you just join me and we'll just continue what I've been doing because you know what? I've got control of everything here. But praise God, he resisted the temptation and overcame the devil. But the Bible says that in the end, 10 rulers will come together and unite under the rule of a final demonic being. The one who will possess that little horn that will arise from the 10. The Bible describes as the beast, the antichrist, the son of perdition and the wicked one. Under his rule, they will seek to make war with Christ. They will seek to resist Christ because the devil knows as well as you and me that Christ is returning. So what's he trying to do? Well, in the end, these 10 will arise. These 10 will be guided by demonic beings. The ultimate one will be the Antichrist who will be indwelt and energized by this final demonic being who must be very evil possibly could be even the same devil that was um driving Antiochus epiphanies to try and wipe out the people of god could be the same one that they will lose and christ will win and now and we should be very happy that he didn't succumb to that temptation which would have been a pretty strong one because sometimes the easy way out looks very very tempting and what jesus had to face and he knew very well what he that was coming to him that he'd be rejected of men that he'd be a man of sorrows that he would have to bear the pain the sin and everything that this world had to throw at him that he would be tortured he would be humiliated he knew what he had to go through. And so the devil was offering him an easy way out. And 
I suppose a lesson in there for us. The devil often offers the easy way out. That the things of God and the ways of God are often more difficult than the ways of man. And so the devil often offers us the easy way. But the easy way is often not God's way. Christ had to endure suffering. Christ had to endure what was to come in order to walk in God's paths. And that's true for us. We can't expect to take life easy. We can't expect to not receive resistance and persecution um, if we're following the paths of God. But sometimes it's oh so tempting to not do anything, to sit back, let others do the work, let others do, do the praying, let others uh, share the gospel, let others do all that, because you know what, I'm too busy doing this other stuff and I don't have time to go resisting anyone. Uh, I don't want people to see that I'm a Christian. I don't want people to see my faith. I would rather stay a little bit hidden. But is God calling us to that? I don't believe so. I believe God's calling us to faithfulness and faithfulness often draws us to a place of opposition. And so in the end, these 10 kings will align themselves with the Antichrist, will align themselves with the devil. And Revelation 17 verse 12 to 14 says, if you turn with me there, it tells exactly who these 10 are and what they will do. It tells us in Revelation 17, 12, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are called with him and so and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So isn't that a blessing? That he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and then they will seek to oppose him, but he and they will seek to make war with him when he returns, but he will overcome them. And those who are with him, because he does return with his saints and angels, those who are with him on his return, which includes you and me are called and chosen and faithful. The great news is that Jesus will return one day to destroy these armies of these men who align themselves essentially with the devil and his man to rule the entire world and, and to finally try and destroy any faith in God. But if you turn back with me to Daniel, there's good news here. And the good news is that it describes a stone which is cut out without hands that lands on the feet of that image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of. And it destroys that entire statue from the feet all the way up to the top. And so if you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, it says, Thou sawest, so he's once again he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Till, until that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image, which smashed the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. 
the rubbish left over after after you sift out the wheat and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them and the stone that smote the image became a grand mountain and filled the whole earth look at verse 44 of daniel 2 it says and in the days of these kings that's the 10 shall the god of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. One of the main doctrines taught in Scripture that we have to look forward to, that we can have confidence in, in so much that God already knew all the kingdoms that were coming in Daniel's day that were going to come after, and he knew precisely what was going on. Whatever's not fulfilled yet will be fulfilled because all the other ones have been fulfilled already. And so that despite the kingdoms of this world mostly being in rebellion against God and being under the influence of demonic power, God is not only in control throughout all of history, but ultimately his kingdom will come to this earth and eventually his kingdom will be a not just a spiritual reality, but a physical reality on the earth. And it will be an eternal kingdom and he will wipe away all this other uh, demonic nonsense that we have experienced throughout the ages, this, this demonic um, um, slavery that we've, that the world has been under. But God will come and rule himself. And so in the context of chapter 2, look at chapter 7 now again of Daniel and see what Gabriel tells Daniel concerning this final earthly kingdom, which is the coming of Jesus Christ, which Jesus actually refers to himself. We'll look at, it. We'll look at that as well. Daniel 7, 9 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Those 10 thrones, those other thrones of those kingdoms were cast down in Daniel 7 verse 9. And the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed and so this is gabriel's interpretation of the vision that daniel saw look at verse 26 now of daniel 7 but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion that's the beast that came into the world that that the antichrist that tried to control the entire world he wants to be in christ's place he knows that christ is set to rule the earth one day and he wants that instead for himself the devil wants to be the god of the world and which he which has been playing around for the last uh, few thousand years but it says that that the judgment shall sit god will finally judge 
the devil will finally judge those demonic beings, will finally judge mankind for following the devil, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to who? To the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The thrones of his king shall be cast down. The kingdom is going to be given to the saints to rule. In other words, all those governors that the that the Babylonians and Persians and Romans had put in place are now given to the saints to do. God will set up his kingdom upon the earth and the saints will be given the rule. In fact, the saints will be even called to judge. The Apostle Paul says, don't, don't you know we're going to judge angels? Which angels are we judging? We're judging those angels that have, that have kept man locked up for so long, that have manipulated mankind. The Bible says the saints are going to even judge angels like that. And so there's this coming king, this, this God, the Bible says, whose hair is white like new wool, who's, 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 he's got a white shining garment on. And I want you to listen to Jesus' words as he, as he describes himself. Look at Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus describes what's going to happen when he returns to this earth. Because if you're under any doubt as to whether the, all these verses are referring to Christ, Jesus knew exactly who, what these verses were referring to. They were referring to him. And so Matthew 24, 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation is once again, the, the last seven years of this earth. And the great tribulation is the last three and a half years we've spoken about. We'll look at it in more detail next week. And we'll look at the identity of the Antichrist in more detail next week. But it, the Lord says here, immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. Who's the son of man? Jesus. He called himself the son of man. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. What are they mourning about? And they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Look at verse 64. In Matthew 26, sorry, there's one more verse here where Jesus refers to himself when he's speaking to um, the people who didn't believe in him. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter, shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew exactly who Daniel was referring to, who the prophecy was about, who the Ancient of Days was, and who this description was about. And so, as, as it says here, Daniel describes him in a specific way in Daniel 7-9. It says, the Ancient of Days, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool, and he was sitting on a fiery, on a throne, which was like fire. And his wheels were as burning fire, like the wheels of a chariot um, that, that conquered. And so the, the image is here of someone who's conquering and judging. And so um, it's an intense image of Christ that we get. 
It's very different to the image we have of Christ as a meek and humble lamb of God, you know, who was who allowed himself to be beaten and and to be crucified uh, without raising a finger to anyone. This is a very different image we have of Christ, a very powerful image. Um, and the Apostle John once again sees what Daniel saw, the same image. He not only sees the beast coming out of the water like like Daniel did, and he sees the with more detail. But look, turn with me just to the final passage over here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. This is who John sees. And compare it to who Daniel sees. And John says in Revelation 1, 13, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head... And his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, the way he looked, was as the sun shineth in his strength. He looked like the sun. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His hair was white as snow. And his bolts, his feet were like fine brass, as if they were burning in a fire. That's the one who will come. That's the one who will come, who will defeat the ten kings, who will line themselves with the Antichrist. He will defeat the Antichrist. He will defeat, who we will look at next week, the false prophet that goes before him, and he will defeat the devil and bind him in the abyss. And that's good news for every believer. Everyone who has put their faith in Christ will not be let down. Regardless of what tribulations and trials believers have gone through throughout all the ages, regardless of what whatever rule they've come under, and there have been some pretty bad rulers over the years, there is one thing we know to be sure, that the salvation that we have been given as a gift will endure to the end, that we are in his hands, there is no one that can take us out, and that ultimately we have put our faith in the right one, in the holy one, in the true one, the one who knows the end from the beginning, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The rulers of this world and demonic beings may try to set up kingdoms for themselves and try to lure man and suppress man and keep man away from God, but ultimately God will win. And he will win through his son. He has already defeated death. He has already, he's already risen from the grave. He already offers everlasting life to all those who put their faith in him. And ultimately he will defeat all demonic rulers and people who align themselves with those devils and he will set up a kingdom that will never ever be destroyed and the good news is that we will be there with him and my prayer is for you today that you are already with him that you have already given your heart to him that you have already received him as your king as your savior as the only begotten son of god and I pray that your life in these days would reflect his character, would be led by his spirit, 
because the days are short. There aren't too many of them. We don't know how long it will be before Christ takes us away and all these things before the earth, which means we may not have a full life to live. We may be taken away or snatched away well before all these all things that we're thinking about or planning for the future may even come to pass. There is nothing stopping Christ from taking us home to be with him right now. And if you're a believer, you're looking forward to that. But we aren't looking forward to that for our loved ones who aren't saved. We aren't looking forward to that for the rest of the world because our snatching away, our being taken home, means that this Antichrist will be unleashed in this world and the devil will try to fulfill the plan that he has had from a long time ago and the world will go through the greatest tribulation it has ever experienced. So we need to redeem these days. We need to make use of them. We need to grow strong in the faith, stay united, stay focused on Christ and share this gospel with our lips and with our lives as much as we possibly can. Uh, remember, remembering that there's no guarantee for tomorrow. So God bless you. If you'd like to know how to be saved, it's very simple. It's to repent, which means change your mind about who you are and the things you're doing and what sin is and agree with God. It's actually believing what God says about you, that you're a sinner that needs to be saved and that you can't save yourself, regardless of how many good works you try to do, that you are destined for hell. And Jesus Christ came into this world to save you from your sin. And he loved you so much, even when you were his enemy, and maybe you still are his enemy, he wants to save you. And he's there for you. His arms are still open. The time is still there. You can still do it today. But tomorrow is not guaranteed. So choose Christ today. Receive him as your king. Receive the forgiveness that comes from the blood that he shed on, on Calvary's cross. And receive him as your Lord and your Savior. Repent of sin. Repent of, of who you are and who you were. And turn to Christ and receive salvation, which is given to you as a gift that you don't have to work for. And that is what the gospel essentially is. That Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day for the forgiveness of our sins. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful week. I pray that you grow stronger in the faith and closer to the Lord. And I look forward to seeing you all uh, very soon by the grace of God. God bless you all. Thank you.